This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't know if you believe in synchronicity, but I've become a big believer in synchronicity. I don't know if it's a reflection of your your uh, your mind sends out different vibes to the universe and then those things are reflected back to you. I don't know if you're just more attuned to certain things once you're thinking about them, but for the last month and a half or so, I have not been able to escape Alex Bennett. Uh, everywhere I go, I am hearing about Alex Bennett. I run into Governor Patterson a month ago. First question he asked me, hey, uh, you remember you put me in touch with Alex Bennett a few years ago? Do you have his contact information? I had Malachi McCord on the radio last week. What does he make sure to mention? Alex Bennett. Richard Bay on the week before that. Who does he happen to mention? Alex Bennett. I was talking to Jay Diamond on the phone a couple of weeks ago. Who does Jay Diamond make a point to mention? Alex Bennett. Now, for those of you that have been following radio in New York, in California, or nationally for quite some time, you know who Alex Bennett is. For those of you that might not have been following uh, New York talk radio in its heyday or San Francisco talk radio in its heyday, you may be less familiar with Alex Bennett. And boy, are you in for a treat because this legendary radio talk show host and podcaster who you can currently hear on GabNet.net is kind enough to uh, stay up a little late with us tonight and uh, chat about what's happening in the world and in his life. Very, very pleased to welcome back Alex Bennett. Alex, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's good to talk to you, too. The only problem is that you did such a big build-up on me, I don't think I can live up to it. If only that were the case. Now, I know a lot of your New York terrestrial fans know you from your time at WMCA or your time at WPLJ, and then you develop this whole separate fan base uh, doing California talk radio. I'm wondering if you can explain uh, to people... I actually became a fan of yours much later when you started doing Sirius. But for people that uh, that have been following your career or even people that may not be familiar with you, what led to you going from New York talk radio to California? Was that your choice or was that just circumstances dictating that that happened? I'd say pretty much I got kicked out of New York. You know, I mean, it, it, you, uh, you uh, have a certain amount of time in a city, especially in those days. And then... Uh, you know, uh, I was always very experimental in the kinds of things that I did. So my, I don't know, for some reason I had a harder time surviving, okay, than a lot of other people. I guess I, I couldn't be mediocre enough. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what it was. So, uh, you know, I I was originally from San Francisco, and I got offered a job out there. and in, And eventually I went back there. And where here in New York, I was known as kind of the youth guru. I think that was the, the term the newspapers pegged on me um, because I would uh, interview, number one, I would interview all the, the leftist radicals of the day, like the Abby Hoffmans and the Jerry Rubens and the Dave Dellingers. But also, I was the first guy to start interviewing as on a regular basis uh, rock and roll acts. Nobody thought of talking to rock and roll artists at all in interviews before I did it. Uh, and and when I started doing it, it became so popular that now you can't think of, you know, rock people not being interviewed. But then I moved to the West Coast. And in, in those days, 
the wonderful thing about moving from one city to another is you could go reinvent yourself. So this time I decided to go with comedians instead of rock people. Hmm. And uh, we I, every morning we would have comedians on and we'd have a live studio audience. And, uh, you know, so I reinvented myself, which was a nice luxury you had in those days because the people in San Francisco didn't know what I did in New York, and the people who knew me from New York didn't know what I did in San Francisco. It, it was very strange. The, the the impression that I get with folks that listen to you in your New York talk radio days and in the San Francisco radio days is that listening to you, whether you were the youth guru, whether you were the rock guy, whether you were the comedy guy, listening to you was a very cool thing. It was a very trendy thing. It was something that young people did, and it was something that uh, that you were considered cool if you were part of the, the Alex Bennett crowd. You know, listening to AM talk radio these days, I love it, but a lot of folks would not consider it necessarily cool. It's an audience that generally tends to skew older. I'm wondering what changed between the 1970s, the 1980s, and these days where talk radio and listening to certain talents on talk radio like you was trendy, was cool, was hip, to now it being something that uh, younger folks almost roll their eyes at. Well, if you remember, there is an organization once in radio called Clear Channel, mm. which is now, I believe, iHeartRadio. Uh, but it was Clear Channel, and the head of programming at Clear Channel uh, one time described talk radio as conservative talk. And I, I never heard that definition of it before. To me, talk radio was talk radio. And and when we would like I was on WMCA here in New York at one point and at WMCA, we had me was very much to the left and we had Bob Grant mm-hmm. very much to the right. You had this 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 uh, group of people who all had a different differing opinion. But now you have radio stations that, you know, primarily I mean, talk radio is conservative. I'm sorry. You know, it, it, it'd be pretty hard put to find a host of a talk show uh, who's on the left. Well, that leads so, me to a question that I get asked all the time. And I wanted someone with your experience and your expertise at the craft of radio to answer it. In fact, somebody just asked me on the air this Friday, but I get asked this even off air all the time, which is why that's the case. Why have there have been a lot of very talented left of center hosts over the years? And yet uh, liberal talk radio, even in liberal cities, has never really been able to break through the way that conservative talk radio has in liberal cities like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. Why do you think there is that is? Why is there not a, a, a left-wing Rush Limbaugh, for instance? Okay, let me, let me try and give you the best answer I can. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think it has to do with the nature of the audiences. You know, it's funny. But left-wingers will listen to a right-wing talk show host because it makes them mad, okay? Uh, Yet they don't necessarily, but it doesn't go the other way. In other words, you won't find, uh, you know, uh, a right-winger listening to Mm -hmm. a left-wing talk show host because they just don't even want to hear what they have to say. So it's kind of like, I guess, the conservative people – 
especially Limbaugh. You know, we can use Limbaugh as a good example. Sure. In the very beginning, you couldn't find a more entertaining talk show. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think people tune into Rush because of his right-wing opinions. It was because of the fact that he was purely entertaining and people found him funny and uh, self pejorative and all the all those things in the beginning he was he was really good at what he did you know so in the beginning rush was quite entertaining i think everybody else that came after rush was a rush wannabe and they never understood what he was doing exactly and i think maybe after a while rush started to take himself too seriously but when he didn't, he was spectacular. This That's similar to the answer that I gave over the years. So you think it's both these Rush clones in terms of the hosts and the desire of these uh, talk program directors around the country that were carrying Rush to uh, mimic Rush Limbaugh's political commentary without necessarily carrying over his entertainment value. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And the, the other thing is, that you know, I mean— uh, really, the trouble with with left wing talk show hosts is they have no idea how to entertain. I mean, even um, uh, people like Sean Hannity, and I mean, I'm talking about people here that I can't stand, you know, or Tucker Carlson, whose shows, TV show I was on every week uh, years ago. Um, they're basically out for themselves. Okay. They have no political beliefs. Forget it. You know, they're out for themselves. They're out to cash a big paycheck and to keep that big paycheck coming in and getting and doing anything it takes to get that audience. Whereas the left wingers, they take themselves a little more seriously, Mm. you know, Um, and I and I think that's that's the difference between the two kinds of politics that are around today. I mean, I would love to see some real conservative politics out there but you don't see it anymore it's more self-serving politics rather than i mean if i were if i were a conservative i would be really mad at the kind of people who pass themselves off as conservatives well i I think there are a lot of conservatives that uh that that are do get pretty frustrated at the nature of uh, republicanism or conservatism these days if people are just tuning in uh we're talking with alex bennett legendary radio talk show host and podcaster you can see him regularly on uh, gabnet.net which we'll talk about in a minute you're doing some pretty creative things there but alex i uh, alluded to a conversation that i had with uh, with jay diamond about you last week or the other day i don't remember which it was he mentioned that he was just talking about the WMCA days again, that he was in studio in December of 1969 on your 30th birthday party celebration. Peter Max was apparently in studio in a band called David Peel in the Lower East Side. It's difficult to imagine, uh, you know, a someone being 30 and being on a major radio station like that today, let alone getting, um, you know, uh, getting a big send-off for a 30th birthday party. I'm wondering what you remember about that particular occasion. Well, I don't remember Peter Max being there, but if he was, I will defer to anybody who says he was. Um, I was, at the time, I believe, the youngest person working a regular radio program in New York City. Okay? 
Um, uh, I, 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 I started when I was 29 in New York. So I was pretty young. Uh, today, you probably find younger, you know, but then you didn't. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it, uh, it was always a fight because what I was have, trying to do is I was trying to do a show for an audience that had never been served, mm. a younger audience. Now, the only way they had been served is, ah, we'll throw out some rock and roll at them and they'll be happy and uh, we won't have to do anything but play music. But they never had the idea that a talk show host could play to a young audience. And that's what I did. And uh, so that, you know, that's the way that went. But, you know, to think that I was 30 and somebody remembers me having my 30th birthday party and I, you know, I just turned 82. Uh, it kind of is scary. So don't bring it up again. Got it. Got it. Duly noted. <laughs> Duly noted. When uh, when we've talked to uh, Jimmy J.J. Walker on this show, when I've talked mm-hmm. to Curtis Lewa about you, uh, when yeah. uh, different fans have written to me about you, a lot of folks tend to bring up your your relationship with, with John Lennon. And I'm wondering if you could set the record straight once and for all. What kind of a relationship did you have with John Lennon? What was he like to interact with on a personal level? Well, I had more of a relationship, oddly enough, with Yoko than I did with John. Uh, I found Yoko very intelligent, a very smart kind of artist. I enjoyed uh, do, seeing her works, and I even did a work with her. Uh, I, uh, but John uh, was different. John was very quiet, you know. Uh, everybody imagines, oh, hey, I'll meet John Lennon. Here I will meet this, this guy who just you know, exudes intelligence and whatever. No, he was a very quiet guy. Uh, In fact, you'd almost think he was dumb. He wasn't, but you would think so, because he played it so quietly and close to the vest. And I got to know both of them uh, while they were here in New York. I can't say we were best of friends. They didn't come out and hang out at at my apartment or anything. But we knew each other. And uh, we had a, we had a relationship, at least professionally and and somewhat convivially with each other. So, um, you know, that, that's the most I can say about John. But uh, the, whenever anybody asked me what would what what was he like, I said if you met him, you'd think he was stupid. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's hey, speaking of the Beatles in the late 60s, there was this rumor that uh, took root that uh, Paul McCartney had died. And yep. w- whenever people in the New York area anyway, look back at the media coverage of that Paul McCartney death rumor, your name ends up coming up. Now, for people that might be a little younger or may not remember 1969, what was your involvement in the Paul McCartney death rumor well i don't like the term involvement because that almost seems like i created it you know uh what happened was the whole thing started on my show uh because one night i came into work this was a wmca and the receptionist said to me i keep getting calls tonight from people who want to know if you're going to talk about this paul uh, the fact that Paul McCartney might be dead. And I said, gee, I don't know. I didn't hear. And then I remembered that 
about a month earlier, I had gotten a call from somebody about Paul McCartney being dead. And here was the reasons why. And then we talked about it for a while, and a couple other people called. And for the rest of the night, we had had um, um, uh, talked about this. And then the next day, it was on to other stuff, right? Now it's a month later, and all of a sudden, this thing that was just a little germ had, like, exploded into this national myth. And um, so I went on the air that night. And I, I remember my first words were, where is Paul McCartney tonight? And uh, from then on, it was about three days of the entire show, which my show in those days was five hours long, mm. of, uh, of talking about, you know, Paul McCartney and why he was dead and why is they barefoot on and why is he barefoot on the Abbey Road cover and blah, 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 playing records backwards and everything. By the third night, I had had it. I get a call from the boss. He says to me, uh, do you think you can keep this going another night? I said, if, if I have to do this another night, I'm going to shoot myself. <laughs> he said, you ever been to London? I said, no, never. I've never been to Europe. He said, well, if you can keep it going another night, you're going there. And so the next day, they sent me to London to suss out whether Paul McCartney was dead or not, you know. Uh, and uh, so that was my so-called, quote, involvement. Uh, tell me about your, your transition from WMCA uh, 570 on the AM dial to WPLJ, which was a legendary station, 95.5 FM. Uh, what, what led to that change from WMCA to PLJ? Well, it's called getting fired. <laughs> um, what happened was is that, you know, as I said, doing a show for a young audience at a time when really that wasn't considered the thing to do, uh, carried with it a lot of uh, fragility. And I had a boss, R. Peter Strauss, who, you know, he didn't quite get it, right? And all of a sudden... They made a deal, and they were going to be carrying the New York Yankees. And that would mean that for a half a year, I wouldn't be on the air at night. So they decided that rather than keep me employed, they just let me go. And so they fired me, mm. and it became a big cause celebra. I mean, a 1,000 people showed up in front of the radio station protesting it, and I had nothing to do with it, you know. And... uh so because of all that publicity, and I had full-page articles in the New York Times about this and Variety, there were four mm. different articles on one page in Variety about the whole thing. And uh, it was enough that somebody over at uh, WPLJ said, hey, why don't you come on over here and, and do your thing over here? You'll be more at home here. And so I went there, and I was there longer than I was at WMCA. I was there for about five years. So uh, tell folks what you're doing now. Uh, you do a, a regular show on uh, GabNet.net. It's not at all like what people might be accustomed to seeing in the world of radio or in the world of podcasting, where you have somebody just pontificate about what's on their mind or interv inter interview an individual guest. You almost host these uh, these daily panel discussions with uh, a bunch of interesting folks from a bunch of different backgrounds. 
how did this idea came about and tell people what, what you're doing now? Well, I've never done anything by design. Uh, things happen. How, how, what's the best way I can put it? Because they're organic. Mm-hmm. Okay. That'd be the best way to put it. And uh, I'm, when I suddenly was not on uh, Sirius XM any longer, uh, the following Monday, I immediately said, I got to be somewhere. So we went and we did a, uh, a show with video. Uh, there was going to be a podcast. And uh, one thing led to another. Part of the problem is, you know, you know, how do you do this show? I, you, you, I'm talking to you over the telephone, and you've got a situation mm-hmm. where you're an engineer, and they plug you into the phone and blah, 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 blah. And you, and the, you pay the phone company a lot of money for that, uh, that uh, hookup. Well, I, I didn't have that kind of money. And, you know, if I wanted to have, like, two or three people on at a time, I'd have to have two or three lines. And I figured, what can I do? And I suddenly saw there was this thing called Skype. And I could have people on Skype, and it wouldn't cost anything. All right? So I made it a Skype. People do Skype calls. And then I realized I can have one per- more than one person on at a time. So by the time we were through, we had a thing we called citizen panels in which, you know, I could pick upwards to 15 people at a time, all sitting around discussing things with each other. And and then that's really what it's become. It's a show about a bunch of people just getting together and talking about stuff. Some nights it's political. Other nights it's just goofy and talking about entertainment and Whatever, but it's just whatever we tend to talk about at the moment. Um, you do an afternoon show as well on uh, on uh, Mondays. That's a bit different from the Wednesday through Friday night show that you do. Um, what is what's different about the afternoon show versus the evening show that you do? I call it nice people, nice talk. Uh, I decided that I was sick and tired of at least I do it three nights a week. Of, of having people get contentious, okay, especially in what is a politically contentious time. Mm. I just found by accident that if I did something at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday, everybody tended to be nicer. <laughs> so we had just been very proud of the fact that it's a nice hour, okay, of just people chatting with each other and enjoying talking to each other and talking about different stuff. And politics hardly ever comes up. You know, it sounds delightful. Uh, I've got to make an effort to uh, to check that one out as well. As you mentioned, you're 82 years old now. I, I uh, I've heard you describe that you live in a, a relatively nice apartment in, in Manhattan. I'm guessing you don't need to continue to do this to pay the bills. Why do you still do this? Uh, because I'd probably drop dead tomorrow if I did. <laughs> you know, I mean, number well, I. You know, it is getting rougher as I'm getting older. You know, I used to be able to go on for four hours a night and talk, 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 talk. And now I'm it, it's hard for me to get through an hour sometimes because I'm a lot. I'm not as, as uh, alert. In fact, I talked to you and said, we got to do this thing a little earlier than when you want me to do right. it. Because right. by the time you, you get me, then I'll I'll be a mess, you know. So it, it, it it's. um but I do it because, uh, you know, just to keep my chops up. That's the reason. 
Um, it isn't because I love radio, because radio, I mean, I hate to insult you by saying this, radio really doesn't exist anymore. You know, and if it does, it's a faint memory. And as you say, it gets a lot of older people listening to it. Uh, and I loved radio. I just I just adored radio. I, I grew up on radio when I was a child, listened to all those shows like Jack Benny and Edward Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and Yes, even Amos and Andy, as racist as some people think it was. And I grew up on radio, and I was a child of radio. When I went to do radio, I tried to bring some of that with me, and I just have always loved the medium. I've done television. I have two Emmys for TV. I could care less about television, you know? There's something about radio that I always loved. But the radio I love just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. I have to really realize that. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know that the podcast is an advancement, but it certainly has taken over the place that, that radio has. Because some of your biggest shows out there are podcasts. Oh, yeah. No, no, no doubt about it. Speaking yeah. of radio, did I – someone told me that your mother became a radio DJ in her mm. 80s or something like that. Is that accurate? She was about 78, I think, at the time. She eventually lived to be 100. Um, she, um, I was doing a show, my first show in San Francisco at KMEL, and uh, my mother appeared with me at a roast. At, uh, Kevin Pollack held a roast for me, and uh, my mother was at the roast, and people loved her, you know, because as I told her, she says, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. I said, look, you're an old lady. Anything <laughs> you say, they're going to laugh at. Okay? And I was right. She And she was a smash. So the station decided to give her a, a, a Sunday night program called Ruth Bennett's uh, Top Ten Countdown. And it was like, you know, like a Casey Kasem-style thing. And uh, she got so well-known that eventually uh, we get a call from The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson, <laughs> and they want her on the show, and she turns them down. Why did she turn down The Tonight Show? I didn't turn it down. She turned No, why did down. she turn it down? Oh, I don't know. I just wouldn't want to go on there. I don't know what I would say. <laughs> and I'm going, God, you know what? All my life, I've worked in this business. I've worked my brains out to, to get to the point where Johnny Carson would call me and say, want to come do my show? And I know it didn't happen to me. It happened to my mother. Oh, so. that, that, is, uh, that is terrific. Uh, before yeah. I let you go, I, I have to ask you about an instance on, in, I think it was in your WPLJ days, one of my favorite Larry King moments of all time is this uh, recording of him reminiscing about uh, his early in his radio career that he goes and meets a woman for a romantic liaison that called the radio station, and he uh, ultimately ends up having to go back to the radio station because the record got stuck when he uh, let it left it on to go uh, go meet this woman. You had an interesting moment where a woman with a very sultry voice convinced you to meet her after your air shift, didn't you? Yeah, it's, it's a very long story, and I can't, wouldn't get into it now. 
But basically, she had a very sexy voice, and I had a friend of mine who was listening in on the conversation because I had told him this woman would call every night when I got off the air. And he's listening to it, and he, she finally says, why don't you come over? And he, he whispers in my ear, I dare you. Well, you know, I mean, and then they did the other thing. It's a New York deal. I double dog dare you. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'll go over. And it was the McAlpin Hotel. And I swear, I go up to her, her room, and she opens the door, and she's wider than the door jam. <laughs> And I won't tell you what went on, but I will tell you that later on that morning, because I was this is my all-night show, so this was early morning. I go home, and my friend calls me, and he goes, "Well," and I said, "It was spectacular. It was the most spectacular <laughs> sex I've ever had." All right. And he says, "Oh, okay. Well, I'll talk to you later," and he hangs up. Two hours later, he calls me back. He goes, you son of a bitch. I said, what happened? I said, well, you know, I went up there. <laughs> and she opened the door, and and I told him what she had said to me when the door opened. And he said, she looked at me and went, you don't have to come in if you don't want to. So what else was I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, um, John Sterling was on WMCA in those days, still obviously an integral part of the New York Yankee broadcast. Those of us that are Met fans are still smarting from uh, the uh, Yankee defeat of the Mets last night. But um, you got to be on WMCA the same time that John Sterling was there. I've heard, what was he like as a broadcaster in those days? I, I re- seem to remember some reference to you saying that he was talking to himself. Is that accurate? He was a self-talker, yeah. Yeah, I, I, he, I finally realized the guy was nuts. Uh, <laughs> and this yeah. was when he was young. This was when he was young. Yeah. I'm, I'm at the, in the control room at WMCA one day, and um uh, He's out in the, you know, there's like this, what we call airlock in those days. There were two doors that led into the control room, two doors that led into the, you know, in his studio. So he had an airlock in between. And he's in the airlock, and he says, so what are you doing after the show? And I'm thinking he's talking to me, so I go, I don't know, why are you asking, John? (laughs) And then he continues. He says, well, I don't know, why don't we go out and have dinner? Well, maybe we will have dinner. And I'm going... This guy's holding a conversation oh, with himself. <laughs> That's now, very I don't funny. know if that continued if he sought help or whatever, but that was John. That's the John Sterling I remember. Was there another sports talk show host in those days that answered the door in a dress? Not that I know of. You know, that's the thing with being Alex Bennett is there's just such a myth that uh, that surrounds you because you've inspired so many generations, not only of fans and radio listeners, but a lot of other talk show hosts that uh, that started out by being fans of yours. Obviously, it's been uh, well documented what a big fan Howard Stern was of your work. And a lot of folks have said he he will. He well, he has admitted it, but privately to other people. But he. All, all the while that I was in San Francisco, he would say, oh, Alex Bennett stole my act. 
And I'm thinking to myself, how can I have stolen his act? I mean, he was a kid when I was doing radio. Yeah. In more recent years, I think I have heard him uh, give you credit on, a, on an occasion give, or two. He'll give me begrudging credit, you know. But not, uh, you know, I mean, I give credit to all the people that influenced me. You know, I, I'm very proud to say that I'm the sum total of a lot of great radio people that I was influenced by when I was growing up. Who were some of the folks that influenced you? Well, my biggest was a guy by the name of Don Sherwood in San Francisco, and you probably never heard of him. But Don Sherwood was maybe the biggest radio personality in the country. He owned San Francisco. I mean, you could you could drive, you could walk down the street, and if people had portable radios, you would hear... The, the same sound coming out of windows and out of cars, and it was Don Sherwood. There was virtually nobody didn't listen to Don Sherwood in the morning in San Francisco, and he was truly a great radio personality because you listen not for jokes or anything else. You listen to see what was happening to Don Sherwood today. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, he was a big influence to me. Uh, and um, I, in fact, went and sat in on one of his shows once. And I think that if I wanted to be anybody, I wanted to grow up and be Don Sherwood. And in a weird sort of way, I did the same. Absolutely. Uh, Alex Bennett, I could talk with you all day. I hope we can do this again soon. I appreciate the time. Let's do it. I appreciate you asking. Me. Thank you, Alex Bennett. Check him out uh, regularly, gabnet.net. If you're interested in people being nice to each other, tune in on Mondays, gabnet.net. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.